This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 20th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What can Alexis de Tocqueville, that keen observer of American life and habits in the 19th century, tell us about the world today? In his book, The Art of Being Free, How Alexis de Tocqueville Can Save Us from Ourselves, James Poulos reshapes Tocqueville for a modern audience and offers Tocqueville's lessons for a life well-lived. Why is Tocqueville so uh, notable? among Americans? Uh, Tocqueville is not your run-of-the-mill European political theorist. Uh, One of the strange things about American political theory uh, in the academy and then trickling out from the academy is how much of it is dependent on these these resolutely European thinkers uh, who, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, are oftentimes primarily concerned with with specifically European problems of political theory, political theology, um, uh, economics. Um, Tocqueville understood that what was happening in America in the mid 1800s was something new. Uh, he said we needed a new political science for a world itself quite new. Uh, but he came at that problem or at that opportunity. As a social theorist, um, and even more importantly, as a young person who had lived pretty hard, uh, he was an experienced guy. He he wrote Democracy in America young. He died young. Mortality haunted him. He was deeply aware in a personal way of the ineffable sort of melancholy and unsettledness of life. Uh, and he saw a whole nation of people sort of immersed in that crazy, unsettled, anxious restlessness. Uh, and it defined their character, and it still does to this day. And that is why he is uh, uniquely well-suited to help us understand just what the heck is going on right now. So what did he see in America uh, in, in the way it functioned, its, you know, very, its societies, as he talked about, that is so relevant to right now? Uh, he saw a, a people who were who were loosed from so many of the bonds that had held human beings in tightly regimented order for centuries upon centuries, uh, but they weren't completely detached. Uh, even though they they felt increasingly interchangeable and insignificant, uh, even though it was it was still very much a who moved my cheese culture and economy back then. Um, there were still some what what he called fixed points in the human heart. Uh, he said that in a democratic age, everything is unstable and, and the heart most of all. So he was worried that we would lose those fixed points too, that we would um, experience. You know, one of my favorite Marilyn Manson lyrics: "I don't know which me that I love. I've got no reflection." You know, Tocqueville feared back then that we'd all sort of be um, completely detached from any stable point of reference in our lives. Uh, but what impressed him most about Americans is, in spite of the fact that they had this huge field of human endeavor, science, art, commerce, um, wherein the rules were always changing, where fortunes uh, rose and fell, where you would throw yourself into the craziness of life and get knocked around and fail and make mistakes and come back for more still. Uh, that astounded him, but he understood that it was possible because Americans still uh, were able to find uh, a place of repose in their hearts, in their friendships, uh, in their intimate relationships, not just you know romantic ones. Uh, as a friend pointed out to me shortly after the election, our non-political associations are more important than ever.
Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, this is a point that also gets kind of lost in the shuffle sometimes because so much of American political theory uh, on both sides is so indebted to European political theory. Uh, greatness in America, and this is something Tocqueville was quite clear about, the greatness of America is f to be found in the grandeur of Americans. Uh, that there's sort of this this remarkable freshness and vastness to who we are and how we uh, prevail amid this tumult of life, uh, especially right now when when greatness is now a, a, a hot topic of political conversation. Uh, I think it's it's an important reminder from Tocqueville that we need to be able to forgive one another for our excesses and forgive one another for the, the way that we take good intentions uh, past the point of no return sometimes. Uh, because that's baked into who we are. There's, there's really no escape from this, this maddening urge as Americans to sort of push things as far as we can and try to grab things as quickly as we can. It's fueled by this sense that, the, what, as Tocqueville says, the longings in our hearts will never be fulfilled in our short time on Earth. You know, we're sort of trapped as these, these mortal creatures. And in American life, things move so fast and they can always change. And even if you build something that seems to last, it so often gets swept away, plowed under in, in the, the craziness of life. What did he see as the cost of this relative American detachment from these old institutions? Uh, he was, well, you know, as a, as a sort of sad liberal and lapsed Catholic aristocrat who would write Democracy in America from the, the family mansion and look out across the English Channel where his ancestors once invaded England, you know, he was, he was, he was, it seemed to him that, that something important was being lost. As the aristocratic age faded away, but he felt that it was it was being lost so so universally that it could only really be explained as kind of a divine providence. Like this is where the history of humankind was going, and the important thing was to find what in it was was rich and fruitful and powerful. Uh, he was concerned that Americans would get so sucked into that world in all of its its joy and maddening craziness uh, that they would feel themselves shrink down to a, a tiny, insignificant size. He, he feared that we would feel that it was always our fault that we couldn't get what we wanted, because all the old aristocratic barriers to advancement were gone, more or less. Uh, and so, you know, in America, so because no one else is preventing it, we yes, can. It'll if, be our fault if it is prevented. If you don't, if you don't succeed, you know, you sort of go home and bitterly think, you know, oh, I'm just like everyone else, except a little bit worse. Uh, and he feared that that would cause us to fold ourselves up inside our own hearts, as he said, and 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 only really have relationships with close friends and family members, like in the Verizon Wireless commercial, you know, and and that that would that would take away our ability to know one another as as truly free and fully human creatures. Tocqueville was, and libertarians love pointing at this out, was fascinated by the uh, seemingly innumerable societies of America. Was that something that he viewed as part of America's greatness? I know he, he thought it was odd. He did. Uh, he did. And looking out hundreds of years into the future, he suggested that probably Americans would sort of shake out into two groups, uh, fully secular people and, and good Catholics, or maybe not so good Catholics. Uh, but that's the way he saw the split. He thought that Protestants were vulnerable to 
crumbling completely if their faith was shaken even just a little bit. And that religion in America was so influential and powerful because it was so popular. And that if there was sort of a jolt to the popularity of religion, there was a danger that Americans would just sort of run away from it completely. Uh, for many libertarians, it's like, okay, great, you know, we don't need that crutch. Uh, but Tocqueville's concern was at a time when so much is in flux and everyone feels so so like like minor characters in the narrative of life uh, that th- that kind of disenchantment would happen so fast and hurt so bad that it would be very difficult for people to sort of find a, a more secular way of feeling good about themselves that could power them through difficult times. And we see that right now. You know, we see there's a lot of self-help stuff out there, and sometimes it can be helpful. You know, for sure, uh, sometimes it works. But there are so many social indicators that that kind of thing just isn't enough. Uh, and so, what has happened as a result? Uh, Tocqueville also suggested that Americans' mania for associational life uh, showed up in 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 their in their excitement about the prospect of joining even the craziest sort of of crackpot organizations, whether they're religious cults or fads or you know. F- bizarre corners of foodieism, whatever it is, anything that promises a sort of direct, mainline, immediate experience of something that lifts you out of the the boring grind of life and gives you a sort of direct access to what truly matters most, that's going to be immensely attractive to people. And there's a, a free market for those kinds of propositions in America. He found that to be uh, impressively bizarre, but also promisingly weird. And for Increasingly, among young people today, they're trying to find additional meaning within their work, and that seems to have replaced, in a lot of ways, what might have otherwise been a church function. Uh, well, there's there's tremendous pressure uh, to to blend work and play together. That's something I touch on in the book. Uh, whether it's you know so the sort of global cosmopolitan figure like Richard Branson who's so appealing to Americans in one way, uh, or whether it's you know deeply American people like country music stars who are sort of have have managed to merge workfulness and playfulness into this single life experience that seems very attractive. Uh, so that that's definitely going to be a site where um, where that kind of fantasy uh, shows up for us and and is appealing to us. Uh, but there are countervailing forces too. You know um, if our work lives are sort of stressing us out and making us question whether it's all worth it, and our play lives are doing the same thing, then putting both of those forces together at the same time can also lead us to, you know, to want to just stay in the Snuggie and eat pizza in bed and, you know, check our phones and, and feel depressed and, and drink until we pass out. Is somebody hiring for a job like that? <laughs> in some ways. Because I'm looking. Yeah. You know, some of these, um, some of these startups, I think, are so enamored of the possibility of kind of dropping out of the flesh and blood world. Uh, we'll have an algorithm for everything, and you know, people's preferences will be able to be ranked perfectly, and we'll just have an app for every preference, and you know, and we'll sort of delete all of the inherently painful and challenging trials from from the human condition. Yeah, I, good luck with that. I mean, you know, don't come crying to me if it doesn't work out. I don't think it's going to. Did uh, did Tocqueville view the church? The good Catholics and the not so good Catholics. Did he view the church as sort of this is the institution that's going to give you this meaning? And 
yeah, you don't necessarily go looking for it elsewhere. Well, it's interesting because the thing about the Catholic Church that remained powerful to Tocqueville as a lapsed Catholic was the the sort of structure of thought and experience that it allowed people to participate in. So it was really because it was shared. Well, because it, it purported to be a, a source of of universal participation and equality. Uh, Tocqueville said, "Look, Americans' tastes run to freedom." They like liberty a lot, but they love equality. And if they're forced to sacrifice one or the other as a people or in their in their personal lives, they're always going to reluctantly part with a piece of liberty before they abandon equality. And for that reason, he thought the Catholic Church, with its sort of vastness and richly populated cast of you know religious characters, was going to offer a kind of sanctuary from the topsy turvy, constantly changing, uh, you know, ego damaging craziness of the world. But it, it's 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 because of that structure. And so you know, Tocqueville said in in a democratic age, the concept of unity becomes an obsession. So the Catholic Church, he surmised, would be attractive to people for that reason. Uh, but so would other things. So would things like you know, like a strong national government. Uh, because you know, in a, in a time when when we're all so small and weak, and what can one person do? It seems like the only thing that could have agency is the biggest thing, is the all-encompassing thing. Uh, and so he was, you know, he was concerned that that would show up uh, in a way that that paradoxically made Americans sort of weaker and more passive than ever uh, in in politics and in social life. In the election of 2016. We had a, a candidate whose uh, one of her big pitches was, "I'm a woman, and we're stronger together." And the her opponent was somebody who said that the people who were opposing him were stupid, and uh, I'm smart. I've seen how the sausage is made. I know how, I know how these deals work because I was on the other end of a lot of these deals. Uh, throughout my business uh, history, and if we want to get back to some America that you sort of remember or your parents sort of remember, I'm the guy I can make that happen. And it seems like either, on either side, people have invested a whole lot of who they are into these particular people. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, Tocqueville suggested that in the absence of something higher, a sort of presiding presence that could unite us in a way that made it not revolting to confront each other face to face in, a, in an unscripted way, which is the story of social media right now. You know, it's like, here's a stranger. I hate you. Right. It takes like two seconds uh, because there isn't that kind of presiding presence, whether it's cultural or religious or 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 through shared experience. Uh, and I think that showed up uh, in the way this election went down. Um, to many people, Donald Trump is sort of this grotesque being, uh, but he was certainly, um, as a candidate, m much more palpably human than Hillary Clinton, who I think created the impression that she she sort of retreated into this impregnable fortress of elitehood where you know your your personal qualities and your triumphs and your tragedies are backgrounded and your ability to function like a well 
uh, well-built algorithm or you know a, a very effective bot, um, the the extent to which your intelligence is distributed through a network of of, of elites is the most important thing about you. Uh, and so, for people who are suddenly confronted with Donald Trump, who says, "Look, um, my qualifications are." I've lived a long time, and I've been kicked around, and in some ways I've been awesome, and in other ways I've been terrible, and I'm a hot mess, but I'm winning as a hot mess. That's not just resonant with people who feel like their own lives are sort of a disaster, but at a time when it's baked into American life, and we're becoming so aware of it, that there's no escape from the anxiety, melancholy, and frustration, and fear, and vulnerability of life. Uh, that can send you in a direction where you think, well, you know, in that sense, Trump just reflects our national character. Or it can send you in a direction where you think, no, we need someone to save us from this. Uh, we need someone, you know, we need someone from that class of people who have assertively made it and gone to the best schools and can be trusted to watch your kids or watch your, you know, your your bureaucratic apparatus. Uh, and that cleavage um, is a deep one, but I, I hoped with the book that I could speak to human Americans regardless of who they voted for, uh, because the fact is um, we all feel that wall of indifference when we, when we get up the courage to be vulnerable to others, especially in public. And that wall of indifference can just crush our spirit and make us not want to play anymore. And that's very sad, and, and it doesn't have to be that way. What on earth does... Alexis de Tocqueville have to tell us about sex? <laughs> uh, lots of things. Um, so many things. Uh, Tocqueville was blown away by how young American women were given the moral training to be able to go out into the world at what in Europe would be an unheard of age and just sort of amuse themselves by deflecting these sort of sketchy advances of men and, and young men and you know boys who were also out of the house at a young age. Uh, and Tocqueville found American women to have what he called manly virtue. You know, they they weren't afraid to sort of uh, risk being ugly and risk getting dirty and risk you know starting to build a house in the middle of nowhere and then pack up and move on if there was a better opportunity elsewhere. Uh, the sorts of of uh, an attitude toward the world that in the old world would only be associated with men. Uh, Tocqueville, you know, he he was. He was aware of the way in which certain kinds of courage were gendered in the old world, and that the, the, that gendering was start, starting to come loose in the new world. Did he see that as a problem? Uh, no, he he saw it as as a hallmark of a new age that that needed to be reckoned with, so that it would go well. Uh, you know, in America, where these things happen yeah, more or less naturally, you know, the American character wasn't the result of the American Revolution. Obviously, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, is a big deal, of course. But there was an American character in the mix before those things happened. Elsewhere in the world, uh, you don't really get democratization in Tocqueville's view without some sort of bloody break, uh, a, a revolution that sort of turns society on its head. Um, and so, for Tocqueville, the way in which Americans were were sort of naturally and organically and artisanally starting to dissolve uh, some of the rules of you know of power and authority and social organization 
that was going to end well for them in a way that he hoped humans in general would be able to emulate without going in an extreme abstract direction where it's like, well, we wrote down on this piece of paper that all human beings are the same and therefore it's true. And if you disagree, you know, we'll kill you because the revolution is eternal. You know, that was the bad planet for Tocqueville. And America um, in that way was a model of how, you know, you could have lots and lots and lots of wonderful, marvelous exceptions as long as you had some rules and as long as those rules emerged in a legitimate and authoritative way from the spirit of the people. And that's a very uh, Adam Smith type of concept. Uh, it, is in, it is in some respects. In others, you know, Tocqueville did not think economics was the master science. Uh, he thought that uh, commercial heroism was a, a baked in part of the American character. And he, you know, he, there's a, an anecdote in Democracy where he talks to an American sailor and he says, uh, why are you selling your boat that you're using to, you know, that this is your livelihood? You just got this boat. This boat's six months old. What are you doing? And the sailor says, oh, there are better boats now. You know, I need another boat. I need a new boat. Uh, and rather than seeing that as kind of a, a pathological, conspicuous consumption problem, he saw it as just the natural outworking of a people who throw themselves heroically into the practice of commerce. Uh, and and for Tocqueville, that you know that itself wasn't just kind of proof that economic man is the only kind of man there is. He linked that up to. Uh, in, in art and literature, what Americans wanted, what moved them, what touched and inspired them. And he said, look, it's not like in the old world where like myths and polytheism, you know, as uh, rich metaphors, those kinds of things. Uh, that's kind of interesting as, as an entertainment for Americans, but it doesn't really reach their heart and soul. Uh, neither does nature, really. You know, oh, pastoral stuff and like hippie stuff and uh, contemplating and enjoying the natural world. Sure, that can be nice. You know, there's of course there's that Walt Whitman aspect of it, um, but it doesn't really move Americans. What does? Well, the part of Walt Whitman where he's like, "I'm the story, I'm the drama. It's me, and it's all of us, and it's our it's our experience of being sort of in this life that we're in." He said that Americans really only wanted to hear about themselves in order to feel like they were plugged into the essence of life. And that fuels our obsession with commerce. Uh, it's not just that, like, well, I'd like to have a little more of X, and I see that you have X, and I have Y, and you'd like marginally more Y. You know, it wasn't kind of this, this clinical, uh, rational transaction for him in the way that it could be for like a good Presbyterian like Adam Smith, you know, where it's kind of about a neat social order. Uh, for Tocqueville, the excitement of commerce in America was that it was such a again such a hot mess. When I say emergent, when you mentioned emergent mm -hmm. rules and and how we conduct ourselves socially, I'm thinking of Adam Smith uh, in the theory of moral sentiments. Yes, more so than das his Adam Smith problem, right? right. Uh, there, yes. Um, uh, again, Tocqueville was not as as daintily systematic about these things as Smith, uh, and Tocqueville was more moved by the the poetry of emergence, if I can put it that way, than the prose. Uh, in part because he saw that as being also of the essence of the American character. He said the Americans were the best Cartesians out there because they hadn't read any Descartes. 
uh, it was just given to them that they lived in this sort of vast continent where you know most of the cities that weren't on the coast were just plotted, literally plotted out on a graph. These are people who lived in a graph. Uh, and and so th- the way in which they behaved economically and socially, even when it showed up in in this incredibly sort of deliberate regimentation, it was still it was still for reasons that that were almost mystical, and that there was something mystical and 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 befuddling and, and inspiring, and the strangeness of life that Americans are always reaching after uh, that couldn't be separated out, even from the way that you know they spent so much time bookkeeping and worrying about money and worrying about where the next paycheck was going to come from, or whether they had enough you know to feed their kids, and you know very practical, very nitty gritty concerns. Um, it was remarkable to him that there could be such an obsession with detail and a concern about the petty affairs of life, and that those things could emanate from this kind of vast, squishy, mushy yearning for freedom and satisfaction. Uh, and I think, you know, I think that's still right now. And those two sides of the American character are still very much with us. We love them. We hate them. We're stuck with them. Uh, we haven't figured out how to resolve them. But if we did, we would feel like something important was lost. James Poulos is author of The Art of Being Free, How Alexis de Tocqueville Can Save Us From Ourselves. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 